Welcome to the Anime Research Group. With so much anime produced each season, many interesting shows just slip through the cracks and don't get the fair hearing they deserve. I'm Ian. I'm Denny. I'm Freya. And each week we get together to give one show its chance, watch the first few episodes, and then discuss what we thought of it. This week we turn our attention to She the Ultimate Weapon, a 2002 anime based on a manga by Shin Takahashi. This is kind of a weird one because... I mean, technically, I'm breaking the rules this week in that this is a show I've seen. In fact, I have the DVD box set on my desk, <laughs> but it's okay because I haven't seen it in 10 years and remember pretty much jack all about it. Uh, the reason I really wanted to bring up this one was because I have mentioned this show so many times because I keep overhearing Sai Kano, uh, How to Raise a Boring Girlfriend, uh, as this. And then I get excited because I'm like, oh, maybe someone else this side of Japan has seen this show. And hmm. Someone of the current anime watching generation, but no. I mean, Ian, people don't watch old anime. There's so much new anime. There's like a hundred shows each season. How are they supposed to go back? Ian, I can tell you that at least 37,852 people have marked it as completed on my anime list. Now you just need to find one of those people. Which is more than have uh, marked Erin as completed. I mean, that's not that surprising, I find. And Rose of Versailles. That may be more so. Actually, more than most things we've watched. Yeah. So anyway, Denny, what would you like to tell us about the show? Well, just the usual basic details. The anime ran from July 2nd, 2002 until September 24th, 2002 for a total of 13 episodes. It was made by Gonzo, a studio established by former Gainax staff in the 90s, and is most well-known for shows such as Last Exile, Gantz, Welcome to the NHK, Strike Witches, to this day the only anime that the Ian has ever seen on Crunchyroll, or Afro Samurai. Um, it is based on a manga by Shin Takahashi and ran for seven volumes. Takahashi isn't really known for much else besides She the Ultimate Weapon. It's his most known work. Um, one more show, which is, doesn't really, isn't really worth talking about. It was um, written in a Hokkaido dialect, which is where it takes place, for authenticity's sake. There are also two OVAs and one live-action movie based on DIP. The anime itself was directed by Mitsuko Kase and actually includes an anime original ending. I've actually not read the manga in this case, so I can't tell you what the difference is. It's a fairly well-remembered show in uh, parts of the internet, but the thing I read most often when I looked through reviews and various other like retrospectives on it was misery porn. And that's always a great thing to find when Ian just goes, hey, do you want to watch some misery porn? And it's like, yeah, man. I mean, I don't have the self-esteem to watch things that aren't misery porn. <laughs> I mean, and from what I've seen, yeah, I can totally see this being misery porn. I mean, uh, the comparison we made most often while watching these three episodes was to school days, so that'd probably tell you something if you know anything about school days. <laughs> I, I mean, I was I was taking the piss when we, I was saying that. Like, I wasn't. Not, I mean, it was just like interesting to reinterpret everything in this show <laughs> from the point of view of that dick Makoto. Yeah, damn him and his boats. He only has the one boat. All right. Freya, what can you tell us about Mitsuko Kase? Uh, not much, I'm afraid. She's another one who's been uh, not doesn't have that many shows to her name as chief director or indeed movies. Have either of you seen Glass Maiden? No. Okay. 
I mean, I don't know about Ian, but whenever you ask, has Ian seen the anime? I just assume no. I mean, old, it, so it, it came out in 2008. I could theoretically yeah. have watched this, but no, I have not watched it. Uh, well, Denny, for your sake, she directed the first half of uh, the Gundam Stardust Memory OVAs. Uh, I mean, I hated Stardust Memories because fucking Nina, yes. but it looked really nice. So the first half was, was the better half. So good on her. I think people uh, Restaurant Paradiso is a show people remember. Restaurant Paradiso. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Doesn't bring a bell. Her most recent work is uh, Young Blackjack. Oh yeah, I watched a few episodes of that. I remember um, also sort of falling into misery porn from what <laughs> people told me about it. Moving on from her, we have the. Um, Credit is writing the script. We have Itaru Era, who, interestingly, this is uh, their only anime screenwriting credit. Hmm. Everything else they've done is live action. Uh, speaking of onlys, um, the voice actor for the main character, Shuji uh, Shiro Ishimoto, this is his only voice acting credit. Yes. Uh, so he wrote a couple of movies called On Mioji. He wrote a film called Osaka Hamlet. <laughs> um, Ian, this name sounds familiar to me. Full Metal Goku Doll. Is that <laughs> something you own? <laughs> Full Metal Goku Doll? Yes. That sounds like two different shows that I have. I mean, when I Google it, all all it throws me up is either Full Metal Alchemist or Goku Dolls Backstreet uh, Backstreet Girls. It doesn't actually oh, well. give me the Japanese live action movie. He also wrote uh, one of the live action Garo Garo TV shows, and uh, he's probably most notable for to anime people apart for apart from this writing the script for the live action Diamond is Unbreakable uh, movie. I think that was fairly well received from what I remember. Was it? Yeah. Okay, if you say so. I mean, I, I don't remember all that much about it. I wrote down the composer. The only reason why is because they wrote the uh, music for Idle Defense Force Hummingbird, <laughs> a show that should be forgotten. Uh, look, the, uh, the reason I remember this show fondly is not for the show. It's the... It is for the Mambo Leo AMV. Yeah. Which is amazing. <laughs> please, please watch that OVA on YouTube. The last person I want to talk about is our chief animation director, Masayuki Sato. Again, mostly for Denny's sake, because um, he did the character designs and was chief animation director for both One Piece uh, Gold and One Piece Z. Both uh, two of the more recent One Piece movies, and both... Uh, very well received within the One Piece fandom. Like, One Piece movies generally, ever since Strong World back in like 2012 or so, around that time, the movies have been on an, like, just on a roll. They've all been, if not great, they've all been very entertaining to One Piece fans, at least. And what I've heard from Stampede, it's just as much fun. Like, prior to that, One Piece movies were of a varying quality. There were some really excellent ones with some fantastic animation and some that were just recap movies. So, Okay, that's that's pretty good because there were some fun original characters, especially in One Piece Gold. I mean, he's a uh, he's done animation and animation directing on a lot of stuff. He, yeah, he's, yeah, he's the name I recognized immediately when reading it. So the first episode, I mean, 
Ian, if you want to give a quick summary, not not too much happened in that episode, I think. Okay, so you get the glimpse of the future that will not make any sense for episodes. But yeah, basically, the main characters, Shuji and Chise, they're dating now. They're not really doing a good job of it. <laughs> um, but like, you know... They're 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 gonna make it work because they're young and desperate or whatever, and then everything changes when the Fire Nation attacks in the form of some unnamed bombers, mm. um, quite a lot of them, uh, totally ruining Shuji's shopping trip to in the mall. Uh, yes, the whole the whole show is set in Hokkaido, and you see a lot of the. Sapporo landmarks, uh, the uh, the TV tower and Midori Park, etc. And yeah, like he's injured, and then what does he see? But his girlfriend with pieces of machinery sticking out of her because she is the ultimate weapon. Dun dun dun! I was gonna I was gonna leave this musical sting to their imagination. <laughs> I thought it was a decent enough first episode. One one thing I liked the military the the as they're walking up the hill to school near the beginning the trucks drive past them the military trucks uh, with soldiers and they don't comment on it at all and it's just left there in the background and mm. there's no there's no internal monologue about it nothing pretty much for the entire three episodes we've got kind of that world setting this is a story where we've got the larger conflict going on in the background but it's not what our focus is on our focus is on the relationship between Shuji and Chisei. So I think them kind of making the conflict a very subtle thing that's not really interesting to us because we don't know the names of any of the players. We don't know why the conflict is happening and we don't know exactly what's happening. Uh, I think that's the best way to handle these kinds of situations because why should we care about that? It's not what we're here for. And it's clearly not what the um, creative staff were interested in. uh... Yes telling a story about, so they just left it in the background and did mm-hmm. it quite subtly, and that was nice, at least in the first episode. How do we feel about the introduction to our main characters? There's not really a lot to say about them. Shuji's just kind of... He's a very passive, bland... Oh, I'm just a high... I'm the average... I'm the generic high school boy protagonist. And she says just like, oh, she sucks at everything, but she's cute, so it's fine. Like, even if you didn't, like, see, like, the, like, plasters on her knees and stuff, she's definitely the kind of person who, like, tries to make something and then it all gets burnt. Or, mm-hmm. like, she, like, cuts her finger or whatever. Well, actually, we saw her making a bento in, I think, the second episode. and that Yeah, looked... um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we did. Uh, but, like, I'm tr- this is the kind of character she is, though. The fact that she didn't ruin the bento, <laughs> notwithstanding. All I really want to say is that, like, her entire character is just, like, Look how vulnerable I am. Yeah. With a great big dose of um, self-confidence issues and uh, victim blaming. Yeah, that, that's, re- that's really all I, wanted, all I was going to say. <laughs> Other than that, in the first episode, the, the few things I would like to talk about is one thing that I thought interesting was they introduced the motif of the bell. Uh, initially, when they're both walking up the so-called hell hill towards their school, because as is common in anime the school always needs to be on top of a hill otherwise it's not a school and whenever chise is off screen and when we hear her walking or moving we hear a sort of bell like the ones that you give to cats to indicate her presence 
And that motif is repeated when um, later in the Sapporo attack, when Shuji is running through the smoke and we hear the bell ringing to indicate Jesus' presence even before she's on screen. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering whether that's going to be a repeated thing in future episodes, just that the bell means Chise. I don't think it showed up in uh, 2 and 3. Other than that, it was a fairly dull episode visually. Um, there weren't that many. There was one decently framed shot. Other than that, it was quite simple, uh, suppressed colors, although quite a nice looking sunset um, that we get at one point while they're trying to sort out their relationship issues. They also did a good job with just keeping the tension going because anybody who goes into this anime with any kind of knowledge about it is just waiting for the shoe to drop. Yeah. But they strung us along quite nicely until the attack on Sapporo finally happens. One of uh, Shuji's friends also dies, Take, presumably to establish the air quote true danger and terror of this of this attack. But I have to say, well, you just said true danger and uh, terror of this attack. It really, really didn't. It didn't land that very well. Yeah, yeah. it did not get across the feeling of uh, being in or near a a, uh, a bombing very well. That's why I said air quotes. Oh, of course, the, uh, the, we know he's going to die through foreshadowing because he's the one that's happy. Uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> he has a relationship uh, and is buying some sort of trinket for the missus, as you do. And that's how you know they're going to die. But yeah, there was a lot of um, just kind of static shots uh, during the... The bombing, which I guess, I don't know, it didn't really work for like, uh, we're in the middle of a bombing, everything's horrible. There was no real intensity to the scene. Ian, do you have anything else to say about the first episode? Plot-wise, it was kind of, it was fine. Like, I mean, I think you're, like, in terms of like the plot, I don't think there was really much to say. The relationship is kind of interesting in that, like, I kind of got the feeling that, like, initially, like, Shuji's, like, doesn't really care. And it's sort of, like, almost, like, only when, like, there's the threat of it being taken away that he kind of has to step up, which is interesting. Yeah, no, I think I think that's definitely a valid point. I also noticed when when they were at the, like, high point looking over the city and she was like, yeah, we, we should probably stop this because you don't really seem like you're in love with me and I'm not really that in love with you. And then it kind of, we cut to his shocked face and it seems like, now that I can't have this, now that I don't have this, now I really want it. Yeah, like his, like, to power, like, I, I don't, I can't, like, quote exactly, but his phrase is just like, well, why did you, it was like, why did you go out with me? It's just like, well, any guy would go out with a cute girl if they, they wanted to go out with you. And it's just like, yeah, this is a teenager. Uh, <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> Like it's nice because it's not they're not really being very cynical, I don't think. It but like it's at least not yet. Like I, I, like as a heartless husk of a person, I really appreciated the fact that this wasn't the stereotypical oh, we're gonna get together and it's gonna be so happy and I'm gonna make you bento boxes and we're going to no longer hang out with our friends or our clubs because we're just too into each other. It was kind of low-key that from her side of it, though. Like, mm. she kind of just mm. fell into the generic, um, ideal, innocent, vulnerable girlfriend uh, role very quick. Yeah. And she doesn't really have much of a personality outside of that. 
And the whole ultimate weapon thing is not something she agreed to. It's just we we see her going home in the and then we just see a man, three men in a trench coat who I presume stand for big oil, big military and big governments uh, following her and they turn her into the ultimate weapon without any real consent on her part or ability to refuse. Was it clear that that's when it happened? I mean, I'm pretty sure it was. It, because... well, it wasn't clear, but obviously it happened off screen between, well, the middle of the episode and whenever she shows up at school again. Because yeah, we have we we have to we have to we have to assume that that's that this is when it happens, because of like the the change in attitude that comes with it. Also, the band aids to indicate that some kind of surgery has been done on her. We actually end the episode on an on an, an interesting callback within the episode because earlier on they're kind of hugging each other and they talk about we have this very loud heartbeat going on. Uh, where they listen to each other's, and then we end the episode with Shuji hugging Shise in her weapon form and realizing that she no longer has a heartbeat. Oh no, she's losing her humanity. Yes. I mean, I presume that's what the whole show is about. Yeah, so, yeah, at this point, I guess we would move on to the second episode, um, where it's got to deal with the, like, oh shit, she's a weapon, what do? I mean, it, it's actually like the perfect like teenage response, right? It's just like you're a weapon, and all these horrible things are happening. You're like hungry all the time. You're eating my fucking bread, woman. Uh, like so, obviously, we've got to run away. Uh, uh, et et bike ride style. Uh, <laughs> Where we get a frankly hilarious scene of Chise kind of dropping rockets out of the back of her shirt. They just kind of plonk out, activate, and then fly towards some targets. That was amazing. Mm. <laughs> I have to say the like the trans the transforming her like transforming parts of herself uh, herself into a weapon never never felt like it was supposed to. It always felt silly. It did, yeah. yeah. Part of it is the way it's designed, and part of it is the way it's directed. I mean, at least... Actually, no, that's not true. I was going to say they never heavily sexualized her transformation, but Mm. that's not true, especially towards the end of the second episode. Better than most shows like this, but... um... Yeah, what you mean by that is it's not a magical girl transformation. Yes, there's no fan service in it. It's always kind of a horrifying thing when it her when her actually yeah we could say when her programming takes over it's never really sold as that horrifying like mm. she feels horrified but like it's just kind of it just kind of happens i'm not sure how you would like make it like seem really horrifying unless you wanted to do it in like well, a sort of a cronenbergian yeah. uh eat man style my that's... hand is transforming <laughs> into like Tetsuo, um Tetsuo the iron man <laughs> yeah or um like just something out of akira or maybe um yeah. the the bald guy from paprika coming out of the other guy yes uh, like it's it's difficult to do this sort of thing without going too far with it and then becoming silly in a different way um but this they just kind of played it so flatly, but then like you have the the stupid the missiles coming out of her back and then bouncing along the road before firing up to hit the <laughs> the bouncing the bouncing the bouncing was silly. And the the episode just kind of ends with the military and their pursuers being close to them, uh, but 
the two of them just hiding in the woods and it looks like they're about to make out but then Chuchu sees like a massive scar uh, on her chest well i mean i mean they 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 do kiss they do kiss yes yeah i actually found Cheesy to be much more interesting this episode because after that massive cliffhanger at the end of the first episode where they stand in the middle of the ruined city we immediately jump to one week later where they're just on the roof together and she's very nonchalant about it it's just kind of yeah it just happened Oh no, I forgot to ask them if I can turn back. Like, there's no seriousness or weight put on that conversation. She's just way too chill about it, is one way of putting it. And it's only really towards the end that we see that that's only a facade she's putting up to, honestly, to put Shuji at ease. Because for a lot of the episode of 2 and 3, it's more about, oh, this, this affects me so much. It's not really, it doesn't really matter how terribly this affects Shise. It's more about Shuji, <laughs> oh man. It felt it was so much easier when I forgot about her for a while. Like, God damn it! Why did she have to do this to me? The way it's framed is that her like um, her problems don't matter for herself; they only matter because they're affecting him. That's basically yeah. exactly what you said. But uh, but also the whole like oh uh, when when he's like unbuttoning his shirt, it's like oh no, look how her body's been corrupted, and it's like. Mm. Ian, I think you raised the whole um, metaphor for kind of growing up, the whole transformation into the weapon as puberty. I did. <laughs> this is this is why we need to. This is why we need to keep the microphone on at all times because I will forget what I said. <laughs> well, she keeps talking about how her body's going through a change and she doesn't like it. And... Yeah, that's more or less the, what what I pointed out uh, when we were watching it. Is... The thing about that analogy is that is the the transformation she is going through is horrible, unlike puberty. Mm-hmm. So, like framing it as a loss of in- uh, innocence, and then comparing it to puberty. And I'm not saying this is your fault here. This is like if the show is trying to bring that up. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's bad. Yeah, that also actually makes me think of. Probably the funniest scene in episode two, which is um, Shuji and Akemi, who is like the typical tomboy and Chise's childhood friend. They're having a conversation that's framed in a weirdly sexual way because uh, Akemi asks if they've had sex already and uh, points out that Shuji called uh, Chise fat, apparently, and that she's on a diet, as as is fairly common in these romance uh, shows. Her like entire body's on screen except her face. Yes, yes. We we see her breasts and they wiggle a bit, and Shuju stares at them, so it's just kind of very awkward. Mm. But then we get then we get to the most interesting, the funniest scene in the episode where um Shuji goes to the classroom and it's framed like a horror movie, like it's ominous music. She says hunched over something. She seems to be munching on something. It could be human meat, it could be metal or anything. It turns out she's just eating bread. That was a nice joke. I like it when they uh, they do jokes only through framing um, like that. It, it was good. I guess, I, guess, I guess this episode is pass off Ian's uh, jokes and insights from the episode that he's mostly forgotten about as your own day. Sorry. <laughs> That's why you got to keep notes, Ian. Uh, but this also gives us an interesting insight into the actual ultimate weapon part of it. Namely that she seems to be growing, implying sort of a techno-organic side to this whole uh, weapon because at the end of episode 3 as well we see that her smallish wings from episode 1 have grown quite massively in size um, so I presume she keeps growing throughout the series, I don't, Ian you can probably comment on that. I can't 
<laughs> Damn it. What are you even here for then? I told you um, this. I told like I, I mean the point <laughs> is that I for I forgot pretty much everything about this. Or that's why we're doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so how how does episode two end then, Ian? The end of episode two is just they've stopped running in the woods, and it's not really. I mean, it just seems to be like the the like through being tired more than anything, and then the helicopter uh, like catches up to her. Mm-mm. Uh, and then, like, she almost just kind of accepts it and just goes along. The person who is in the helicopter is like, I mean, we don't know this during the first three episodes, but he's like the scientist who like did it to her, and he's like her handler, and he sweats way too much. It's not helping. <laughs> the interesting thing is then uh, moving on to episode three. Is at the beginning of episode three, they've not been found which I thought was kind of implied at the end of episode two when the helicopter was hovering over them. But no, they're still on the run. At this point, sadly, Ian had some audio issues, which is why we had to record his voice from a different device, and which is why he sounds differently now. Like, it doesn't actually end with the... the um, it doesn't actually end with them, like, deciding to come back. As you point out, that like, them coming back is in the next part. The, mm. What it actually ends with is like this weird sort of bumbling like teenage grope fest that doesn't really happen. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like the start of the third episode, I think Denny was trying to say is that they've not really been discovered and they just sort of decide to go back themselves. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think the way to interpret it is sort of like the teenage run away from home and then they realize well actually I can't run away from home because where would I run to? Well, first, first they actually do. They they really con- they have much more concrete plans. Like they go, both go back home. They plan to meet at a train station later to take the train and start their lives somewhere fresh where nobody knows them. But of course, we get the classic plot with Shuji waiting at a train station, and she say does not show. Right. I only mean that in the sense of the running away on a bike. <laughs> yeah. Ah, yes. She gets intercepted by the military. Hmm. And decides to help them. And she has a weird, weird flying noise. Decides. In quotes. Yeah, we kind of... They're, it's, it's less that they're directly forcing her and more that they're guilt-tripping her to, look, here's all these people who are going to die if you don't act. Uh, it's like during this episode that we, like... He sees other people who look familiar with to, uh, to him, like riding a bicycle, and it was his teacher... Uh, and lover, Miss Fiumi, who is a character that is going to show up uh, more than once. Uh, I don't think it was made very clear what their um, their power dynamic was like previously, but he was in middle school at the time, and she was in high school, or she was a teacher. Uh, yeah, she was the track team coach. Ah. Or- slash teacher i guess well that's much worse yeah because it definitely makes it look in a look like in a flashback that they had sex in the equipment room Mm -hmm. which raises some questions as freya said about consent and everything especially since she's now back she's married um but she's still she's still trying to seduce him once uh, he tries, once he helps her back home after she's fallen down, as Chise was transforming nearby and made like a big explosion. The memory of that is actually quite interesting because it's like a grainy like video uh, as they do it. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was an interesting stylistic choice. 
it seemed like he either suppressed it or has yeah. uh, forgotten parts of it. It's interesting because you contrast that to he has an earlier memory of her where it's just sort of all in white and she's framed in the middle, sort of semi-angelic. Yeah. So he's like, wait for me in high school, Chuji. <laughs> so it's interesting to contrast those two memories of her. Yeah, like, I actually think, it, it, like, I mean, it's not clear that it's particularly traumatic, but if we take it as traumatic, then that would definitely be, like, emblematic of it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, we also learned that her husband is in the military and he's not been home in a while, which is apparently why she's cheating on him or trying to cheat with him with Shuji. We don't actually know if they have sex or some kind of relationship because it just cuts to them hugging and then Shuji on the next day thinking about how, as I've said, it was easier when he forgot about Chise for a while. Which, that's actually why I'm, uh, I think your comparison with School Days is surprisingly apt because we have the indecisive protagonist who can't really decide between two women and is probably going to end up hurting them both, at least currently. Yeah, although in this case, they're kind of framing one of the women as a pretty um, explicit sexual predator. Yes, yes. Which is, unfortunate, which is her entire character, which... Yeah. <laughs> If she wasn't, if she wasn't the only older woman, well, apart from his mum, if she wasn't the only older woman in the show, it would bother. It it wouldn't bother me. But mm -hmm. uh, we like go back to school, and it's all the usual school bullshit. Got to pretend like nothing happened, right? Shuji and uh, Chise go on a like a sort of like a ice cream eating pseudo <laughs> yes. date, which has fantastic meme potential <laughs> uh truly unfortunate framing i i have got that screenshot of her eating the ice cream and it looking like fellatio and it will be with me forever or at least until <laughs> i clear up my pictures folder uh and he sort of just agrees like not to really pursue the topic with her like she has her own troubles you know why why do anything when you're a protagonist of an anime and that's kind of it for the third episode. It ends um, with Chise on a battlefield as we see her kind of more evolved form. That, that was also another thing we never actually mentioned is that every time she starts transforming, she just glows white. And then when Shuji touches her, she just turns back to normal colors. And she has these, these yeah. uh, wide white robotic wings, which is supposed to look kind of angelic. Yeah, she, she's becoming Angemon and has to go through her digivolution. <laughs> uh, but Shuji keeps pressing B on it. I have to say, again, the way they're portraying the like ultimate weapon part of it is so like so tonally all over the place. Yeah. It's like you've got the scene of her floating over the battlefield and she looks all dramatic. Uh, with the like big white glory wings, which is a cool image, which is ruined by the stupidly oversized minigun she has in place of an arm. <laughs> There's the weird el electronic noise she makes when she's flying around, which this sounds silly. Yes, it, it certainly yeah. does. It certainly does. Like it, it sounds like the sort of sound effect you get in a like when, in a like goofy and magical girl show when they're like flying around. One nice bit of sound work, though, was um, the ticking oh, yeah. clock that was going on in the background as she was about to transform and she was yeah, trying was to make good. her choice on what to do. The the music with the ticking clock in that scene was good. Like, that sold the, like, the horror elements of it more. And it sounds like I'm complaining that it's not, like, serious, serious, this is a horrible thing that's happening to her, but it's more I'm bothered that it won't, like, pick 
a uh, a tone, a tone, and stick to it. Which I like shows with tones that are all over the place, <laughs> but not every time that that happens. So, like, from what I can remember about like the show after this, um, we don't. It doesn't focus very much on like the war aspect at all it's all focusing on their relationships and like how like i want i, I want to i'm not sure how to phrase it it's like basically like she's dying inside right as she becomes mm. more and more humanity mm. humanity is slowly getting lost it's like i just want to be a normal girl but unfortunately i can blow shit up from space mm. and it's definitely a lot more in from that point of view you get like some subplots with like other people uh, and how like the war affects them. But like this is a military show, which isn't about bang bang pew pew. But I I don't know that it can take it takes like a really grand like sociological view. It's mm-hmm. it's quite focused. It's really neat that it's like a military show where the military stuff is all in the background. It's more about the fallout of that on um, um, civilians and one person who um, is technically the military. I'll be honest, I don't think the uh, character writing is uh, good enough to for me to get invested in. Yeah, and that actually brings me to something I want to talk about. Ian and Freya, what, what would you actually say is the genre of this, uh, of this anime? I would probably describe it as a military romance if Mm -hmm. I described it as anything. Mm -hmm. Because as I was doing my research, I found a really interesting article by uh, a researcher called Motoko Tanaka, where she examines a genre which I had not heard of before, but I actually recognize a lot of anime that could fit into this category called Sekaike, which is the motif of the world in crisis combining world-ending apocalypses with school romances, where we have the very passive male protagonist meeting a powerful female character who is either a strong warrior or really important to whatever is going on in the background plot, which perfectly describes um, Saikano. And in this genre, women act as both mother figures and girlfriends offering unconditional love to the passive protagonist who does not fight and only really gains his importance through his connection to uh, his girlfriend. Look, in, in in fairness, this describes almost every romance anime. <laughs> yes, yes it does, but I thought it was a really interesting... Well, every, every romance anime, anime that has science fiction involved, at least. Mm-mm. Because it's all kind of a bad copy of, a, of the Evangelion prototype template. I immediately thought of Eureka 7. For for a show that I really like and that Denny hasn't seen, Evangelion has done a lot of damage to anime. <laughs> None of it is, is its fault. Mm. Yeah. Tanaka <laughs> if then... only it hadn't gotten popular and yeah. it remained a cult classic. <laughs> uh, that's, the, that's the fate of so many cult classics. If but... only it hadn't inspired a million... Uh... <laughs> Uninspired. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, Tanaka then if goes. Only more people were like Yoko Taro and only took uh, the spiritual influence of it instead of the literal influence. Anyway, I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> but yes, uh, Tanaka then goes on to relate the popularity of this genre to Nietzsche and Hikikomori's as it gives them. And I'm, I'm now directly quoting from what she's written. 
as it as it gives them the desire of omnipotence by allowing their protagonists to indirectly control the world through their empowered girlfriends and refusing the experiences of resignation, refusal, and uh, loss, which as kind of when I thought about it, it's kind of what the uh, modern isekai trend of the last few years is all about. With the exception of there, they've moved on from being the passive protagonists to being the active driving force with the formerly empowered girlfriends of the early 2000s now being transformed into the generic harem girls. So what, yeah, just actually, I just as we're talking about this, like I was thinking about like how like this progresses and like, um, because like Shuji does become, I guess, a slightly better boyfriend. Like he's like, he wants to protect her and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, and like, I, and just the fact that we were talking about like romance and like, the, like then harems came to mind. And I was just thinking, like, I don't say this a lot, but Clanad did it better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like um... the whole, the whole, a like after story of Clanad, like from the point where he starts dating Nagisa onwards, is just like a better. It's just better yeah. than this. Like the uh, the episodes of Planet, um, when it's just those two as adults dating and having a relationship, uh, and the immediate fallout of uh, Nagisa dying. But yeah, I just thought it was a really interesting. It was not a subgenre I'd heard of, but once uh, I read about it, it just became obvious that yeah, of course, this is what's happening in so many different anime I've seen before. Like Eureka Seven immediately came to my mind of just oh here's the here's the girl that kind of really is most she's really important to the sci-fi heavy background plot but what's really important is the romance between her and this uh, and our male protagonist who's just kind of whiny and it just reminded me that anime has and very often will always remain just the kind of power fantasy for the blank protagonist to imprint himself and gain significance through various means, which is often why we enjoy it. But sadly, it's often not done very well. And it's the thing I, it's the thing I complain the most about. Yes. Yes. By me, you mean anime watches in some subsection of anime watches. Yes. I mean, a large sub, I mean, a large subsection of the general anime viewing public that isn't really invested in the medium too deeply to recognize its various tropes and uh, fallacies. Uh, I mean, not as large as you might think. <laughs> I, I don't, I like, I mean, this seems like a debate for, this seems like a debate for another time, I think. Yeah. Because, like, this isn't even true if you only consider, like, the the people who just watch, like, your typical, like, popular show. Like, to take, like, the classics of, like, your Dragon Balls and your Sailor Moons, like, these sorts of like popular like shonen or like magical girl shows or like even like the love a lot of the love shows aimed at like women like these protagonists are doing stuff like it definitely aimed more at like a certain kind of male otaku type yeah no no i think i think it's my fault for just generalizing a large subsection of anime fans i think it's fine to enjoy it as long as you're aware of the um the context of messaging it behind it mm-hmm. like there i i follow several people who are not the typical demographic for these shows watch them anyway and enjoy them but are perfectly aware of all of the 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 weird messaging and the the implications of them yes i i, I certainly do not want to generalize anybody just by saying that i just feel like there is 
due to the trend of the isekai genre, where, which I feel is very much a trend to enjoying the power fantasy, and I'm, I'm not above about reading the occasional isekai manga and just enjoying how stupid it is, but I, I'm just linking the power fantasy that we get from the isekai to these older power fantasies and kind of thinking about how we moved from um, the passive protag- the old passive protagonists to the modern active protagonists. Well, you, you said something to me earlier when you were talking about this paper that, like, uh, she was connecting this to the rise of the not incel. Uh, yes. I, I said, uh, I thought incel then by mistake. Uh, Hikikomori uh, life, quote-unquote lifestyle. Um, yes. And, and neat. I, th- I think she also talks about economic uncertainty and uh, general yeah. um, senses of loss um towards the future, which is fairly understandable in today's world. But she does specifically bring up Nietzsche and Hikikomori, and she, she talks about a refusal to mature by s- indulging in these feelings of uh, of power through empowered female protagonists. That's a loaded statement. The final thing I'd like to bring up is the, that apparently Chisei is named after the, um, the Ainu word for home, uh, North Japan's native people, which I think is inter- is interesting when we consider this whole um, Tanaka's talking about the mother slash girlfriend figure and kind of the home for the passive protagonist. Yes. Um, the connection I make when you mention that is uh, just a geographical one, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Because like the Ainu, well, they're, they're the indigenous people who lived in Hokkaido, North Honshu, and the parts of Russia that were formerly Japan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, and just like the show, it, like I mean, I'm I don't know if it's clear who the uh, the enemy is in this sh- uh, show. I don't think it ever is made clear. I mean, I guess we'd have to assume it's either Russia or Korea or China, just because. But then the like satellite imaging has English, uh, so could it be America? I don't think it is because they're coming from the the wrong direction. Uh, yeah, but um, the show does lo- like I, I mentioned. As I mentioned like uh, earlier, like the show like does seem to revel in like just picking like a real world setting that mm-hmm. isn't Tokyo. And we didn't mention this in episode two, but it is confirmed that Tokyo is destroyed. As uh, usual. So those of you who had destroy Tokyo on your anime bingo cards, please <laughs> score that off now. Mm. Uh, also, please tear up your anime bingo sheet <laughs> and never look at it again. Unless you've got a bingo. Then please send in your bingo sheet for your victory prize. And I will tear it up. <laughs> yes. What do we feel about, like, the music? I mean, you mentioned, like, some of, like, the more, like, the sound design elements. But, um, like, I'm just more of, like, the... the I just... How about the music? Uh... I don't think there was too much to talk about in music terms. Besides the uh, the one song that Shuji seems to be humming continuously and that we also hear the lyrical version of twice once in episode two and once in episode three which i assume is going to be a recurring theme in future episodes just this kind of focus on the one songs with its lyrics probably being important or somehow relatable to their situation besides that i didn't really notice too much of the musical um, score of this of this anime the song uh, he is humming is called Yume Miru Tamini, just because 
I wanted to, to know the answer to this, at least according to this Yahoo Answers that I found. Uh, but that is a real. I, I think it's. I think it's just. I think it's just made for this. Okay. Uh, and it's not like a. It's not a real song. Quote unquote. I mean, it is a real song, but it's not. It didn't exist prior to this show existing. Um, <laughs> I liked that one song that played in the the scene with the ticking clock. I actually think the clock is probably part of the the uh, the music. Um, mm-hmm. That song was. Uh, uh, it had a lot of nice uh, back masking where the the uh, the tune was reversed, and it was just sort of the like uh, the nice uh, electronic ambient stuff that I like to listen. So I liked it, and it fit the scene very well. Uh, other than that, it kind of the music kind of reminded me of, um, well, either Hibernate Remy or Aria, I guess. There was a lot of uh, Spanish guitar. And, I mean, that uh, that sort of music is kind of typical for a uh, slice of life or school romance, at least in this period of time, the early two thousand. And then, whenever she's on screen in her weapon form, we kind of cut to more hard rock and um, guitar-heavy music. Oh, I forgot about that. Track. Probably to indicating uh, to, to indicate that she is a to indicate that she is a boss, and we have to fight her. <laughs> yes. And Yuian, what what did you think about the music? Uh, well, I just really wanted to mention the uh, like. I think this is a time where I could mention the opening and endings, and like, I mean, I had forgotten like how good like the opening uh was just 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 in general like the direction of this um we've we've all spent a lot of time arguing about openings (laughs) (laughs) yes we do uh and like when we like agree we eventually like agreed what our top 30 was like we uh, we uh, we went through like a lot of openings and like this one like i'm i regret not having checked out when i was doing it because I think it was better than some of the ones we put on there. Um, mm. It was a very, it was visually appealing. Um, but Ian, me and Daddy think there's ones that didn't get on that list that are better than some of them too. Yeah. Well, Freya, me and Ian still think Busa Rankin should have been on. <laughs> yes, but that was never going to happen. <laughs> I'll live with it. Anybody who's listening to this, go and listen to the Busa Rankin opening and pay attention to how it's cut because it's fucking great. But like, it's just this like sort of grainy at times like kind of found footagey in like the sort of muted color palette that they have and like just overlaid with uh in french for some reason like just the thoughts of like these characters like uh i'm lonely i will protect you etc etc it was quite i was quite good yeah i i liked it um wasn't a massive fan of the song but um like it was, it like it went with the, it went with the visuals. It, it definitely went with the visuals, yeah. which is more than can be said for ninety percent of anime openings. <laughs> the the director of the the opening and the ending specifically is uh, Yu Ko, who uh, has not directed any other openings. I am surprised. Hmm. Usually, people who direct one tend to direct a lot. Whereas the ending is just a good screensaver. Well, I mean, good good for the time, not good by modern standards. <laughs> and uh, talking about directing, in general, I felt the anime was fairly decently directed. As for, as Ian's point said, there were some interesting shots, such as the low, uh, low-angled shot of them eating ice cream, some good shots, such as the hands framed. Okay, so when you say interesting, you mean interesting in quotes. 
Yes, interesting in quotes. Yes, and um, some some good shots such as the hands held uh, with the sunset in the background or the horror scene in episode two. But other than that, I felt it was fairly average. I don't know if either of you felt differently about it. It was functional. I'm I'm not sure whether I want to say it's like great or bad, but like it's certainly very different from like a lot uh, from about some of the other things we've seen. I think it had like I mean it's a product of its era because like in like the modern 3D world, there's like there's shots that we could just do like dynamically that they couldn't do dynamically. Uh, mm. You mentioned the um, the one uh, with the bombing and how like it was all very static, but. Like these sorts of like just like static cameras and stuff, I like I kind of miss. <laughs> oh no, I I like static cameras. It's just that uh, I don't think it worked for the the scene. It, it I mean it didn't it didn't work for all the scenes. Um, Say what you want about shaky cam, but I certainly feel like during a bombing run, having some shaky on your protagonists can help to make the situation seem more intense. It's just a shame Michael Bay has ruined that film technique forever. There was one uh, interesting bit. They had a, a POV shot, which you don't see that often. Oh, yeah, that's true. At least I can't think of that many examples. This is when, was it in episode one? It's definitely when, it was at one point when they were up on the, the hill mm-hmm. in that little um, building overlooking the city. Like, uh, one thing they did know, we, we know, we, we already already is like the very muted like colors that we've seen. This often like came with like overexposure in a lot of shots, uh, to like really just make it white. They, <laughs> uh, um... they, uh, I think they like only like overexposed it in that one scene in the third episode where she comes back from uh, fighting again and she's all fucked up or whatever. Um... Certainly, like the the brightness knob is turned all the way up. <laughs> yeah, it was an interesting choice. Ghost Town used it better. <laughs> so. so so many things, right? Yes. Um, I guess I could. Ju- I'm just kind of glad that this show wasn't set in winter, except for like the first <laughs> seconds. They could have gone to the Sapporo Snow Festival. They could have gone to the Sapporo Snow Festival, but I'm sure that that's on hold because of the war. And like we called it out already, but like there was one de- the device that they of using the satellite image. Uh, they they used that as like a scene transition at times, which was quite good. Didn't feel too overused, but I'm sure by the end of the anime, we'll we would have thought differently. <laughs> the color palette in general was very well. It was very desaturated, as is typical of uh, um, sort of shows like this from the early 2000s. Like, Habanero mm-hmm. Made looks like this. Kino's Journey looks like this. Um, so, uh, with that, they all kind of suffer from the problem of being in the, the era of early digital <laughs> shows. Which yeah. means they were targeting standard definition resolutions. And are very difficult to uh, remaster without them looking blurry and kind of crap. So it's kind of unfortunate that the show is probably stuck looking. Yeah, we no- we noticed this when we were watching it because I was obviously watching the DVD of it, and you were watching some other oh, version of it, and yeah. we noticed that like um, there was like a a quality difference uh, mm, mm. that. I guess we probably weren't expecting. Hmm. I was expecting, because I've experienced this quite a few times. 
And I guess, I guess we should quickly dispose of the character designs. They were fine. <laughs> they were early 2000s characters. Yes. Fucking Shuji's nose. Shuji's nose. It's so weird because... <sighs> it's, tri- it's triggering me. <laughs> I've been uh, in Romy and Kino from this time, and they've got good... Well, more so Hyman and Romy. They have, like... Nice character designs, right? Yes, but I think I th- this is just coming from the guy's manga because uh, oh, you see yeah. it in you see it in another manga uh, by um, Shin Takahashi. Like I, I saw like a few pictures of it, and like the characters look very similar. I think I was, I think it was mm. your fragment. I saw uh, some mm, images, mm. and also they're blushing all the time, and when they're blushing, they're double blushing. We presume that the blushing all the time is just meant to indicate that it's cold because the show takes place in Hokkaido. Or it's just a stylistic choice and there's no... Yeah. Maybe, maybe. It's just to highlight their innocence. Yeah. I think with that, we've kind of wrapped up the majority of things. So unless you guys want to talk about something else. I I think we've beaten this dead horse. Yeah. (laughs) So before we move on to giving our eventual verdicts, here's some choice pieces of trivia that I found on the show that didn't really fit in anywhere else in this discussion. One, as with a lot of franchises, Saikano 2 has a PS2 video games. However, unlike Ghost Town, where I was easily able to find some footage, it is apparently so obscure that there doesn't seem to exist any gameplay footage of it online. Just the intro cutscene. Two, Shinta Kahashi, besides his manga career, also has a single acting credit in the film Trouble Man, Baruto Caruso. Take that for what it's worth. And three, and I think this is the most interesting fact, besides writing Saikano, his most famous work, um, Shinta Kahashi is also responsible for writing the manga guide to regression analysis, linear, linear algebra, and statistics. I have read the manga, I've, I've read the manga guide to databases. <laughs> It was, it was a thing. I, I don't think that uh, you can make third normal form better by making a manga about it. So, Danny, what did you think of Saikano? Well, I thought it was decent. It was another solid show, very steeped in its early 2000s design tropes and um stylistic choices just that were common at the time but i didn't feel like there was anything atrocious about it that i hated it's not a show i think i'll continue because i don't generally enjoy these types of show i don't enjoy the shuji archetype of of protagonist i think i would just give this a three back rockets out of five um ian I'm kind of in like a weird position because like I've I remember like I remember kind of enjoying this show. I don't know that I like I didn't I don't remember like going like oh yeah this is my shit. Uh, but like it was it was fine. I th- I think it was ju- I think it was just that they was very different from most of the other shows I was watching at the time. Um, which is like why it's well, which is why I purchased it, and <laughs> which is why I. Uh, it still remembered it like ten years ago and was like, yeah, that was that was a show I could watch. I mean, the default is always three back rockets, mm-hmm. um, erring to slightly less, um, because like I don't think there's anything like there's nothing really special about the show, and I guess that if that's 
that's like making me go like, yes, I really need to find out what happens here. Uh, so yeah, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe two and a half is probably more accurate. Okay. Freya. Um, so I, I'm really interested in the idea of having a, a military show where the military, uh, I think I basically said this earlier, but the military stuff is all in the background and it's focused on the fallout of that on, um, civilians who aren't even in the actual war zone um but the characters felt very underwritten especially Chize, uh mm. who's written more like an object than a character and there are ways to do uh that well i don't think they did it well here it's kind of mostly just functional from a visual stand and uh audio standpoint so yeah i'm I'm not happy. I will give uh -huh. it two, two back rockets. So yeah, with Saikano out of the way, it turns to Denny to tell us what we will be watching next time. Next time on the Anime Research Group, we'll be watching Star Driver Karayaki no Takuto, a 2010 mecha show by Studio Bones. And with that, bye! We've not said bye on any of these. Yeah, because I always say it, but then I always decide to cut it. You've got to leave this in now, though, you know? You've got to cut in the middle of my sentence. And here's a special treat for our Japanese fans. Anime Kenku Group e Yokusu. My season Seisaku Meru Anime ga Hijou ni Oitane. Oku no Kyokim. え、興味深い番組が日々笑ってしまい。当然のようにコヘナ長州がおこなは出ません。次はイエン。次はデニー。次はフレア。そして毎週私たちが考えてこと。ついて話し話し合います。今週は あ、話し合います。今週は高橋真のマンガをベースにした、え、2002年のアニメ最下の、または彼女、旧国の武器に注目します。はい、はい。I'm very proud of you, Ian. Uh, that was Google Translate. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I knew that I knew you didn't you weren't able to just do that off off the cuffs. Okay, well, I mean, I was originally just going to like do it in German, but I thought it would be, fun, but like I thought like you might buy it for a for like five seconds if I did it in German. Oh, that, that should that should be a gimmick. Willkommen in der Anime yeah. Research Group. Mit so viel Anime, der jede Saison produziert wird, wünschen wir interessante Shows einfach durch die Ritzen und bekommen das Fire Gehor. I like how you tried so Dina. hard with the Japanese pronunciation and how you like. Let me just throw on my my best my best German accent. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, that's that that's a, that's a treat for you when you're editing. Mm. Uh. <laughs>